Good to see all of you this evening, braving the, the cold weather to, to be here tonight. Glad to, to have you here. As we start this evening, I want to tell you about the fall of an ancient city. It's the city of Gamla, sometimes referred to as Gamala, depending on which map you read in the ancient world. It's located in what would now be the Golan Heights of Israel. This city, the Gamla, it comes from an Arabic word for camel, and Gamala is the Hebrew version of that, I believe, from what I read. The city had this name because it was located on a very narrow ridge, about 10 kilometers north of the, the Sea of Galilee. Can you tell I found this on a website that wasn't U.S.-based, 10 kilometers instead of in miles? The, the ridge is located on three sides by ravines, so it looks a little bit like a camel, and the city is located on what would be the, the saddle after the, the highest hump. The eastern edge of the ridge had this high hump, and that's where it was located, and on the south side of the saddle of that hump. To, to me, the, the story of the fall of this city sounded more like an urban legend when I first read it, the, read the historical facts about it. So I spent some time this week looking at Josephus, who's an ancient Jewish historian, seeing, is it really this way? Did this, is this really what happened? Well, Josephus records this is what happened. Gamla was known as rebel town in, in the first Jewish war against the Romans. That, that would be in the... The 60, well, we'll find they fell in 67 AD. Jerusalem falls in 70. So we're in that war. It was known as Rebel Town. And in Josephus, he describes these defenses that were formed by the natural ravines, the steep ravines. And in the city, also, he says, had natural advantage of having a perennial spring that, and, and being located on trade route of Babylon. It was a significant city, an important city, one that the Romans wanted to conquer when the Jewish revolt occurred in, in that decade. For protection, the city had a large wall that protected the single side of the city from which you could approach it to attack. In fact, apparently, from what I read, the signs of battle are still seen in the thick walls, the, the remnants of thick thick walls. You can still see the battles from, from the Jewish siege that, that was mounted there. The siege and the battle, as I said, came in 67 AD, just three years before Jerusalem fell. The reason I bring this city up is because I want to talk about why did it fall? Why did the fall? It, did it fall? Obviously it did, since I'm telling you the story. It had these great protections on three sides. It had this massive wall on the, the one side it could be uh, attacked from. And According to Josephus, it fell because that great wall of protection was breached. Now, at this age in, in history, sieges never came as a surprise. The, the approaching army was anticipated well before it arrived. You could see the advance, and then the army would form up its camp, and then they'd be building ramps and siege weapons. All that took time. A siege was not a su surprise event. So when Gamla the, knew that it was facing a siege, they went about strengthening this wall. They had this single wall that they needed to defend, so they strengthened it. When they strengthened it, there was a nearby tower that they incorporated into the wall, a tower that they could use to look out. Outwardly, the city now looked impenetrable, but such was not the case. Josephus records that on what would have worked out to, in our calendar, October 20th, 67 AD, under the, the cover of darkness, uh, around the third watch, he said, three Roman soldiers snuck up to this tower that was now incorporated by the wall. The, the soldiers managed to pull out five stones from the base of the tower. 
And then they crept away in the dark as that tower came crashing down, taking out a large chunk of the wall when it fell. Of course, there's the breach that the Roman soldiers needed. They could now get into the city and through that breach in the wall, all because these three men were able to remove five stones. The, the wall protecting the city of Gamla looked strong. Clearly, there was still a weakness, though, at the foundation of that spot where the tower was standing. Tonight, what I want us to do is visualize our personal spiritual wall of protection. I want us to, to consider how strong is our wall, the wall that our faith brings. Visualize our faith as if it's the wall that, that protects us from, from the onslaught of the world that's attacking us. Our wall may look strong. We, we may have all the visible elements that, that seem like we have great spiritual ramparts. But how about the stones at the foundation? Is our foundation vulnerable? I expect it will be a month before I'm able to preach again on a Sunday evening here because of my trip to Chad, so I decided it did not make sense to move into the next section of Zechariah. Instead, we're going to turn to two verses in Second Peter, as, as Pastor Aaron mentioned here. Two verses in his last writing, the, the second letter that Peter wrote. These are verses that, frankly, I, I recognize over the years I've reference frequently. I, I reference these two verses in classes. I reference them in sermons. Yet only in passing normally. Tonight I want us to park on them and examine them carefully. We don't know exactly which church or churches Peter was addressing with this letter. But we know from the, the letter that Peter's labored among these, this church or these churches during his, his lifetime. By time of the writing here, Peter is, is an old man. He, um, his denial of Christ that we know him so for well on that, that last night before crucifixion, that, that's years in the past now. And he's labored diligently since then. He, it, his life has been a life of long, hard labor for the cause of Christ. According to verse 14 of the first chapter, he knows that he's near the end of his life. He is, his life, the remaining part, is very short. Before the end of his life, though, he wants to leave a final word of testimony behind for the churches he's labored within. This letter of Second Peter, it, it goes beyond just giving an encouraging testimony, though, from an aged mentor. Peter also sees that there are seeds of false teaching that's beginning to creep into the church. So this letter he writes is addressing those because he sees this, this false teaching coming in, the, this old mentor is picking up his pen one last time to do battle. He, in this letter, he deals with the immediate situation, the, the issues that, that are, are coming up, but he also seeks to, to strengthen the foundation of the wall of faith in these churches so that further false teachings will not re-encroach when he's no longer around to, to defend he wants to leave behind, if you want to visualize it, strong walls of spiritual protection. Things that, walls that will survive any battle that comes in the coming years. He, he may stamp out the, the false teaching of the moment, but further attacks will certainly arise. That's the nature that the church of Christ will face. If faith falters and, and false teaching makes a breach through which it can enter the churches, Peter knows the churches will be destroyed. He doesn't want that. He wants a legacy of churches that are able to resist all attacks. 
At the beginning of this letter, before he deals with the, the immediate teachings that, that are coming out, the false teaching, he starts by working on what I'm calling the wall of faith. He, he works on this foundation. He wants to, to secure the foundation before he deals with the issues. Well, it could be that we need to do some similar work on our foundation. What does our wall look like? What does our faith look like? Are we ready for the false teaching that comes? Or are we susceptible? Will they find a breach in, in our wall of faith? Have we fortified ourselves? As you can see on the screen, we're looking at verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter chapter 1. Peter's first words after the introduction of the letter, the first theological truths that he's given us, truths that, that will ensure that our faith has a strong foundation. In, in these verses, there, there's three central truths. Truths that, that will strengthen our faith so that we're able to resist any false teaching that, that might arise. Things, three, three truths that, that will keep us from, from actually giving in to false thinking, the thinking of, of any era. So the way I want us to visualize these truths tonight is think of these truths as three immovable stones that, that we should fit into the foundation of our wall of protection of faith. Things that will keep us from false doctrine. As we look at the three truths, we, we see these three stones, if you will, we can see that, that there's one thing they repeatedly show us overall. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. That's their overall teaching. The power of Christ. That's where our foundation comes. That's the foundation of our faith. And these three stones are there from the power of Christ. We'll read our two verses for a night, but... Since they're right at the beginning of the letter and we flow directly into them out of the introduction, I'll just back up to the beginning and we'll start verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, before we get to the three stones the, that I want to point on, these three truth elements, notice that, that verse 3 starts saying that his divine power has granted to us, what's the next word? All things or everything, depending on your translation. His divine power has granted to us everything. Peter really wants us to get that point right from the beginning. Everything that flowed from the, the rest of the letter, really, especially verses 3 and 4 that we're looking at, everything in these verses grammatically and theologically come out of this fundamental truth. Everything comes from Christ. His divine power has granted to us everything. His is Christ. It's Christ's power that gives us what we require for life and godliness. And not just for some things, but everything. Everything, all the things that we need for life and godliness. Now, I know I'm repeating myself. I've said that, I, don't, I didn't, lost count how many times I said life and godliness. Everything for life and godliness, I'm repeating. But I want us to get this point. 
everything. His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So often we think we're lacking something. We need something else. We, we're not able to have what we need. We're, we need to gain something. No. His divine power has granted to us everything. The verb that, that Peter uses that we have translated granted or bestowed means that, that we didn't get everything by, by working for it. We didn't get everything by earning. It was given to us. It was bestowed upon us. It's a simple point that, that we cannot overlook. Uh, of course, the, the word life points to our spiritual life. The, the power of Christ gives us our spiritual life. Think about it. If Christ had not been willing to leave heaven and become a man, we would not have our spiritual life. If Christ had not lived a perfectly sinless life, we would not have our spiritual life. If Christ had not sacrificed himself in death on the cross, we would not have our spiritual life. If Christ had not been able to raise himself from the dead, we would not have our spiritual life. If Christ did not grant us his righteousness, we would not have our spiritual life. And we could go on and on listing things. Our spiritual life is completely dependent on Christ. We're powerless on our own. We could not do any of these things required for our spiritual life. Any of this list we make, we're not for Christ. It's through the power of Jesus Christ that we have spiritual life. Everything is from Christ. Yet, it isn't just the spiritual realm that, that Christ's power applies to us. All we need in the here and now for this life also comes from his divine power. His power is all that we need to live a godly life right now. We have the power that we need to resist sin. We have the power that we need to live godly. It's all at our disposal because Christ granted it to us. That's the central overriding truth here in these verses. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. Peter begins his letter just stating this fundamental truth. Christ he is where our power comes from. He is our foundation. But what are the three specific stones, if you will, that, that Christ gives us that, that then form the foundation for this protective wall of faith that we can build upon or, or to protect ourselves from any attack? What are these three things that come through the power of Christ that he grants to us? Well, the first stone that, that comes in these verses, if you want to keep visualizing our wall here, the first stone is, is that we have our calling through Christ's power. We have our calling. We, we can maybe think of our calling as, as the mechanism that is used for Christ's power to be bestowed upon us. Think of electricity running to a light. It runs through a switch. When the switch is on, the current runs to the light. The light turns on. It connects the power to the light. Well, our calling is the switch that, that connects us to Christ's power. Notice that the verse says, through the true knowledge of him who called us. It's through our calling that, that we have all the required resources of our spiritual life. It's through our calling that we have all of our present godliness that, that is supplied here by Christ's power. It all comes from Christ. Now, 
let's get a little technical tonight. You guys can handle it. I took you in the weeds this morning and nobody got, got lost. Everybody came back, so we can go technical again. Theologians call, are calling here the idea of the effectual call. The, the idea of effectual simply means that it's effective. It, it, in other words, it works. Theologians contrast the effectual call with what they call the general call. And they do this because when you look through scripture, it's clear this word call has a couple different nuances. Sometimes it's used in a general sense for something that's broad, everybody receives, and then sometimes it's used in a specific sense. The general call is broadly given. It's something that goes out to everyone, but it's not always effective. The effectual call is always effective. The effectual call is the act of God by which an unsaved person is summoned from his unsaved condition in, in such a way that, that he recognizes his hopeless state. He, he understands his eternal damnation and he heads towards Christ. It, it, it's, he understands this, if you want to think of it, this eternal lifeline that, that Christ offers. He, he recognizes his, his state of drowning and, and sees that salvation offers a lifeline and grabs it. It results in the person willingly accepting Christ. This is all part of that miracle that, that we call salvation, where, where the human free will interacts with God's sovereignty in imperfect harmony. That's the effectual call. When the effectual call occurs, Scripture's clear that a person's free will is not removed, but it's equally clear that, that God is at work so that the person will always respond positively to the call. It's somewhat imperfect as an illustration, but I think I can illustrate this a little bit by a phenomenon that, that happened in our house fairly regularly when we had a teenage son. I, I'm guessing the voices maybe can, will be able to reflect this a little bit or, or, or understand what I'm talking about. There, there were several types of calls that we made in our house when Daniel was there, but they were not always effective calls. They were things like, do your homework, go practice piano, go to bed, some of those calls just weren't always effective. There was one call, however, that at least in our home was nearly 100% effective. Come for dinner. That call normally met with an instant response. Why? Well, he was a teenage boy. You know, he's one of those creatures that, that, that lives in a, just a perpetual state of, hu of hunger. I remember many times him telling us, I'm hungry, and we said, yeah, that just says you're still breathing. You're not giving us new information here. So when we called him for dinner, we were not in any way infringing on his free will. We weren't forcing him. He, he could have just as easily ignored the call for dinner as he did any of the other calls. In fact, maybe he could have ignored it with a little less consequence. Some of those calls carried consequence when he refused to do his homework after he was called to do so. But the call to dinner was a call that his will responded to naturally. He, he saw the call to dinner as vitally important. Well, the effectual call parallels this, this imperfect illustration. It's imperfect because the effectual call is always, 100% of the time, effective. Even as, as important as dinner was to, to Daniel, there were a few times that he ignored the call because he was engaged in something he considered a little more important. That never happens with the effectual call. Christ's power allows the unbeliever for the first time to truly 
truly understand his sinful condition, to comprehend the eternal punishment that, that his condition will, will bring, and the unbeliever then responds naturally, urgently, to the call of salvation. Notice that, that Peter says it's through the true knowledge of Christ that we're called. This is why it's so important that, that the gospel is given to people and, and that the gospel that we give has to be the true gospel. It, it needs to present the Jesus of the Bible, not some fairy tale Jesus that's created by TV or, frankly, in our country, far too many churches. A Jesus really of, of people's imagination rather than the Jesus of the Bible. It's only through a true knowledge of Jesus that, that Christ's power will call people because the Spirit is the one who, who works in applying the power of Christ. Peter says Christ called us by his own glory and excellence. His glory points to the, the display of his divine nature as the incarnate Son of God. Jesus was divine, as we've talked about repeatedly he, he showed it through his miracles. He, he showed it through his resurrection. He showed it on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory. His excellence, that, that translates a, a word that describes his inner virtue, his moral goodness, the fact that he always, always did the Father's will. He was without sin. He was perfectly holy. That's what allowed him to be the sacrifice for our sins, his excellence. His glory and excellence, they combine to give him the ability to call us to salvation. And our calling then is the first immovable stone that we have from Christ's power. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. We have our calling through Christ's power. Let's take that stone now and just set aside for a moment and let's consider a second stone, what we see in verse 4 that, that we receive here. We have our divine nature through Christ's power, our divine nature. Verse 4 says that, so that by them, that, that them is the magnificent precious promises that, that came with Christ's calling of us, all the things we receive from Christ, so that by these things, you might become partakers of the divine nature. So that by them, you might become partakers of the divine nature. That's an amazing statement. In order that you might become partakers of the divine nature. Why did Christ do what he did? So that you might become partakers of the divine nature. As a result of Christ's power in our lives, we partake of his very nature. Now, of course, we have to be careful here. This, this verse does not mean that salvation, we, we cease to be human or that we become many gods or anything like that. This verse is referring to that new nature that, that's given to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our, our spiritual life, that, that new nature that's spiritual. What really makes this new nature amazing is, is that it shares, or, or it partakes, using the words of Peter here, partakes in the moral nature of Christ. We share in his moral nature. His moral nature is a perfect, sinless, holy nature, and we share in that nature through the spiritual nature we're given. And that nature brings a desire that we've never had in our life before this. That, that's that desire to please God, 
to use our lives in a way to please God. This afternoon, as we were celebrating our discipleship one-on-one this afternoon with the group that's been involved in that, I mentioned that I'm convinced that every believer wants to become a discipler who can serve God because that's part of our moral nature that we receive from Christ. We want to do what God wants us to do. Yeah, we struggle with our old nature, but we have this new nature. It's the nature of Christ. Our divine nature has the ability to spiritually commune with God. If if that doesn't pop your brain just a little bit, you're not thinking hard enough tonight. Wake up, let the cold leave your body, and and think about what you've been given here. Our new nature allows us to spiritually commune with God. It lets us interact with the God of the universe. We can interact with our creator. That's what prayer is all about. We're interacting directly with God through our divine nature every time we pray. Furthermore, our divine nature over time begins to model Christ. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven as, as Christ in you. We start to resemble Christ. I, I think of it a little bit like people who have been married for many years. Now, the, the husband and wife, they may be dissimilar in their features. They, they, they obviously are a man and a woman. They're, they're dissimilar in their features, but you know, they still begin to look alike, don't they? They, they, they take on each other's mannerisms. They take on each other's expressions. They begin to walk and talk and act and even think alike. They begin to partake in each other's nature. Essentially, that's what Peter is telling us about our life with Christ. This is a surprising statement. He says here that we have a new family connection, and that family connection is with Christ. And, and like with all family connections, we begin to share the family resemblance. As we spend time with Christ, we take on his mannerisms, we take on his expressions, we begin to think like Christ. We begin to act like Christ. We begin to talk like Christ. In theological terms, we experience progressive sanctification. The, the process of becoming Christ-like. Yet this change is tied to Christ's power. We, we don't accomplish this on our own. It is Christ who provides the power for these changes. As we observe these changes in our lives, we, we can have confidence that, that our faith is not in vain. In fact, as we see this happening, our faith becomes stronger and stronger, which is why this is a second an immovable stone that Christ gives us for the foundation of our wall of faith. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. We have our divine nature through Christ's power. So, just like we did with first stone, I want to set this aside for a little bit. We have the divine nature. It's immovable. It comes from Christ's power, but we'll set that aside. And let's consider a third stone that, that we have from Christ's power. That's the stone of escape from corruption. We have our escape from corruption through Christ's power. In the final part of verse 4, Peter says that we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This really is the the final fabulous truth that we have in these verses here. 
I, I think of it as that third stone for our wall. And in a sense, escaping from corruption is in one way just the, the, the flip side of the previous truth. We, we have Christ's divine nature and that divine nature that, that gives us our connection to God. It also is the escape mechanism that, that takes us from the corruption of this sin-cursed world. But again, let's notice Peter's careful wording. Peter writes, having escaped... The events already occurred. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We need to understand that we've been given our full deliverance from the corruption of this world as another benefit of the divine nature. That, that phrase, having escaped, that, that conveys the idea of a successful flight through danger. Let me give you a picture. As you know, I grew up in North Dakota, and, and I enjoy hunting. You know that as well. Well, the main hunting I did in North Dakota initially was hunting geese. It's part of what drives me crazy with all these geese running around out here. They should be shot, not left to do their thing all around our, our yard. Anyway, never mind that. Growing up, we, we lived right in the migratory path of, of ducks and geese. So from fifth grade on, my... my my dad took me hunting. In fifth grade, bought me a 20-gauge shotgun, and we'd go out to hunt during the goose season. And we'd go out early in the morning be, before the sun was up so that we could go into some pits that were dug around a, a lake where geese would spend the night because at dawn, the geese would take off. And we wanted to be in those pits so that we could get them as they took off from, from that, that lake, that, that large pond, really. They... They usually took off right at daybreak, so oftentimes we'd go out even. We'd, we'd go out hunting for an hour or two, and then he'd take me to school, because I could do that before school started. So during my years of hunting, there were a lot of geese that, that flew over me. And frankly, they provide a perfect illustration of this idea of having escaped, a successful flight from danger. The, the geese had to travel through danger when they came over me. My, my gun threw steel shot up into the air, it went in their general direction, but I'll be honest, my, my aim was such that most of them had a very successful flight from that danger. At the end of the morning, they had escaped to fly another day. Well, that's the essence of the idea that Peter's given us here in verse 4. We have escaped from the danger that's surrounding us through Christ's power. So let me ask, what is the danger that Peter says we've escaped. We have escaped. Well, he calls it the corruption that is in the world by lust. That, that word corruption that has the idea of decomposition, decay. It is a term that, that is used often in Scripture to, to depict the, the moral filth and the pollution of the, the, uh, the world has without God, a, a world that is alienated from God, a world that, that opposes God on every level. The world is decaying all around us because it rejects God. We see it happening. This world is a world of corruption. The source of the corruption is found in the final two words, by lust. The, the corruption comes from the evil passions of, of the sinful human heart. The, the rebellion that, that caused the corruption is not external to people it's internal it's at their very core it's it's what they want with their sin nature in fact this was our core nature as well we were part of the corruption 
We were caught in it. We were captivated by it. We were captured by it. Captured that is until Christ's power broke us free. Our salvation was the great escape. We have escaped. The danger remains all around us, but now it's external. It's no longer internal. We have escaped from this corruption. We're out of danger. We've already completed a successful flight because the flight is not our own power. Christ powered the flight when we accepted his blood as payment for our sin. We have escaped the corruption of this world by lust. I know how often it feels like we haven't escaped. So often it feels like the corruption world is, is still pulling on us. And that's because it does still resonate with our sinful nature. We're, we're constantly tempted to fall back into sinful habits. And, and sometimes we do fail for a time. But Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, that, that we can consider ourselves dead to sin because we are alive in Christ. So while the sinful nature still pulls on us, the fatal blow has already been dealt. We are living with a dead sin nature that's dying as we go. It, it cannot survive the power of Christ. We know that our new life will ultimately triumph because our new life is based in the power of Christ. We have escaped. It is an accomplished fact the, the third immovable stone that, that Christ's power gives us is our escape from corruption. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. We have our escape from corruption through Christ's power. So that's the third truth that, that we can think of as an immovable stone in our wall of faith. That the power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. Our wall of faith is made strong through Christ's power. The, the wall, as I said at the beginning, protecting Gamla, it fell because there was a weakness there in the foundation of the tower. The, the Romans were able to remove those five stones from the foundation and the tower fell. And when the tower fell, the wall was breached. Our faith forms our protection for our Christian life. We can anticipate that there will be attacks against our, our faith, We'll face attacks through false doctrine that will try to breach our faith. Yet, if our faith is built on a firm foundation, it will stand. This evening, we've looked at these three stones, these unmovable stones that, that we can use to form this wall of faith. Unmovable because they rest on the power of Christ. Stone one, we have our calling through Christ's power. Stone two, we have the divine nature there through Christ's power. In stone three, we have our escape from corruption through Christ's power. Assuming you're saved, you have these three stones. They're given to you. They're bestowed on you by the power of Christ. Still, let me ask you, how strong is your wall of faith? Are you ready for attacks against your faith? From what we find in Scripture and what we live out, if we've lived any amount of life as a Christian, we should have no surprise at all when attacks come. From everything we see in the news, we should find little surprise if we face increased attacks even as we move in year after year of life. The question is, are you ready? 
We have these stones that Christ has provided for us. Have you placed them into the foundation of your faith? This week, I happened to stumble on a picture of a person's house. And this picture of this person's house had this huge stone located where the person wanted to build the house. And rather than find a way to move the stone, the person incorporated it into their house. This massive stone now was a feature that took up a large chunk of their living room. It, it was resting at floor level, and they built the floor right around the stone, and then the, it reached nearly to the ceiling. I fear sometimes we take these three truths that we looked at this evening, these great spiritual truths that Peter has given us, and, and we treat them a little bit like that stone in the person's house. We admire our calling. We, we admire our divine nature. We discuss how brilliant our escape from corruption is. But in the end, these truths are admired as ideas rather than incorporated into the foundation of our faith. Other times, I fear we take another approach. We simply discard theological concepts as too difficult to work with. It's as if we, we look at these stones that Christ has provided and we decide, ah, they're too heavy to, to work with. So, so we leave them laying where they're at and we select lighter building materials. We replace theological truth with fuzzy emotions and, and weak thinking. And in the end, we form a weak foundation for our Christian lives because we're using other stones than what Christ provides through his power. And when, then when the text come, we're surprised that those stones that we put in, because they're easy for us, are so quickly removed. Take comfort this evening in, in the knowledge that Christ has provided everything pertaining to life and godliness. We just have to use what he's given us. He, we need to use what he's provided for a firm foundation for our faith. The power of Christ is the foundation of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this glorious power that we see presented to us here in this letter. The results of that power that work within us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to use these truths more fully in our lives, to cling to them, to build upon them, to rest secure in the truth of Christ's power. Father, I pray this evening that each of us would leave here restored, renewed and invigorated again by the, the truths of these verses. First, in Christ's name we pray, the one who gives us his divine power. Amen.